Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the ability to be able to gather. Lord, this place uh, to be able to gather. Lord, this body of believers to be able to gather with. Lord, you've blessed us, and uh, we do not take that for granted. We do not forget, Lord, that there are friends around the world, brothers and sisters around the world, that are not able to gather in freedom. Lord, when they gather, they make a conscious choice of the risk that they are taking. Lord, they, they gather in a place that is uh, oftentimes um, secluded and hidden and even dark, perhaps, so that they might uh, avoid the authorities. And, and Lord, here we are able to gather in public in a land that has uh, granted us the freedom to do so. Lord, here we are, each of us, able to have a Bible in our hands Lord, that has been preserved through the centuries. And Lord, we are remarkably uh, blessed people, and we are indeed grateful for that. Lord, we ask that you would continue to cause our hearts to be. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. You'd open it up to our hearts. Lord, we've been uh, learning so much as we go through the book of Esther, and we pray once again today that you would speak uh, to each of us where we are as a body of believers and as individuals. And so, Lord, minister to us, we pray. In your name, amen. Well, today we have the blessing of finishing another book of study, uh, verse by verse through. That's our goal, verse by verse, to go every, through every book of the Bible. Sometimes it takes us a long time, like Matthew took us 63 weeks, I think it was. Uh, here we, we probably did about seven studies in the book of Esther, and so today uh, we're going to finish that. I mentioned you turn to Esther 9 which is where we left off. And I'll remind you that last week in chapter 7 and 8, when we were looking at that, there was a tremendous turning of the tables because Haman, this fellow, this prime minister of the nation who hated the Jewish people for a variety of different reasons, much of which had to do with this guy Mordecai, but for other reasons he must have hated them as well. Otherwise he was just a man prone to overreaction. But he hated the Jewish people and he came up with a decree as the second most powerful man in the nation, a decree to annihilate and destroy all of the Jewish people all throughout the kingdom. And again, the estimates range anywhere from 3 million to up to 10 million people that he wanted to have wiped off of the planet. And so what we were watching is how this was coming about and then it seemed like the Lord had abandoned his people, finally. After all of those years of the Lord protecting the Jewish people, now they had gone too far and he could not protect them any longer. But indeed, he did. And we saw that the tables were turned. Haman ends up dying there in chapters 7 and 8. But as we learned, that does not solve the Jewish problem. Because even though Haman, the one who masterminded this idea of destroying the Jewish people, is dead, there's still this law that is on the books that says the Jewish people will be annihilated in about 10 months' time. On a particular day, on the last month of the year, they would be destroyed. And as we've been learning every week, really, the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be altered. And so despite the fact that Haman is dead and he was the one really pushing for it, despite the fact that the king really doesn't want this law anymore, the law is on the books and it cannot be changed. And so the Jewish people must be killed. Now, what what the king could do, as you recall, is submit a second law a second decree which would give the Jews the privilege of defending themselves. And we even looked at the possibility, and some people think it's out there, that not only did they create a law that they could defend themselves, but he gave them the weaponry or whatever would be necessary to defend themselves as well. So he enabled them 
to defend themselves. It's as if the king said, look, there's nothing I can do to repeal the first decree, but what I can do is create a second decree which enables you to defend yourself against the first. And that's exactly what they did. And so we read at the end of Esther, actually in the middle of Esther chapter 8, where Mordecai and Queen Esther, Mordecai, now the new prime minister, a Jewish man, and Queen Esther, we read this in chapter 8, and Mordecai wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and he sealed it with the king's ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers to all of the provinces, verse 11, saying that the king has allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack the Jewish people, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces. And of course, that one day was the exact day that had been set for the Jews to be killed. And so he cannot get rid of the first, but he can establish a second. And so that's where we leave off, verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm, and no one could stand against them, for fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also Parshendantha, and Dalphin, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashatha, and Erisei, and Eridei, and Vyazatha. The ten sons of Haman. See, I think they had too many sons, and they just began making up names, as you can see there. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid hand on, no hand on the plunder. And so again, the second decree now by the king, it grants the Jews permission to defend themselves and likely the means to defend themselves. And we see that the very throne that had previously condemned the Jews is now the throne which is going to protect the Jews. And if you notice again, look at verse 1, it says, and so on the very day, of course, we've been looking again and again at all these coincidences that we find in the book of Esther where things just so happen. On the very day that had been ordained for their destruction, when that day arrived, that became the day of their victory and the day of their deliverance. A day when the Jews would gain mastery over those who had hoped to gain mastery over them. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember at the end of chapter 8 that as people began noticing God's hand of protection on the Jews, that many began to join the Jewish faith. And we pointed out this fact that there was still a decree of death over the Jewish people. But people could not deny what God was doing. And so regardless of the fact that there's this decree of death out there, they're saying, look, you know, I don't care about that. God is with these people. God is real. God loves them. God is protecting them. I want to be with them. And so many of the Jews joined, or excuse me, many of the peoples joined in with the Jews. But as we see here, not all of the people joined in with the Jews. Not all of the people took notice. And so again, if you look at verse 2, despite the fact that God's clear hand was on the Jewish people, 
there were thousands of people that ignored that altogether. And they made the decision, we're going to go against God, and we're going to go against God's people. As you see in verse 2, it says that people from all over the cities, uh, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought them harm. No one could stand against the Jews for fear of them. And sadly, this decision, regardless of the evidence, to rise up against God and his people, we see in verse 5, it ended up costing those people their lives. It was Matthew Henry that wisely pointed this out. He said, if these people would have simply sat still and attempted nothing against the people of God, not a hair of their head would have fallen to the ground, but they could not persuade themselves to do that. They just hated the Jewish people and they hated their God and they ignored the evidence and they forced themselves really to come against God's people. And the result of that is it cost them their lives. And I I read that and I say, how indicative of the fallen nature of man or the nature of fallen man that despite overwhelming clear evidence, man will nonetheless rebel against God. And as the scripture makes repeatedly clear, he will experience the consequences of that rebellion. There were thousands of thousands of people that declared themselves here to be the enemy of the Jews. But despite that fact, the Jews had one that was on their side, and that was the king, and ultimately the king of kings. And it was the king of kings, the Lord Jesus ultimately, who would go before them, he would enable them, and he would stand in their way in place of destruction so they would not be destroyed. And once again, we see in the history of the Jewish people, and one of the reasons I love studying through the Old Testament, a lot of people don't like, it's boring, I don't like the Old Testament, whatever it may be. But as you read through it and you see the narrative of God's hand on his people, it enlarges our faith because we know that the same God who had his hand on those people has his hand on us as his followers, as his children. And we see his faithfulness and we see his sovereignty And we see his hand of protection. And as Paul, the apostle, would say, if God be for us, who can be against us? And again, that's the mantra of the Jewish people throughout their history. If God be for us, who can be against us? And we walk in his ways, we seek to be faithful to him, and we let him navigate the circumstances, and he always does. And so you look at verse 2, it says, now the Jews, we've read this a number of times, they gathered in their cities. Notice that, they gathered in their cities in their cities. The idea is that they came together as one force. And imagine how different this would read if the Jews did not gather together as one force. But rather they just sort of kind of did their own thing. I'll be okay. I don't need any help. I don't need the support of my neighbors that are also going through the same thing that I'm going through. Imagine if they went about this every man for himself or every family for himself. The reality is that they experienced strength in their numbers. And it was by gathering together they could withstand the thousands and thousands of people. We're going to read that there was over 75,000 people that came against them and lost their lives. That means 75,000 people attacked them. Your family, no matter how strong you are, you as an individual, no matter how strong you are, you're not going to be able to withstand 75,000 people coming against you. But collectively, they could withstand 75,000 people that were coming against them. And truly, as it says, there is strength in numbers. Now, may I give you the converse of that as well? There is weakness in isolation. There's strength in numbers. I think we all recognize that. But there is weakness in isolation. There's a proverb which says this, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Another version says his own destruction. He breaks out against all sound judgment. 
And the lesson there for us as believers is the importance of fellowship and connectedness. The importance of fellowship and connectedness. Lone Ranger Christianity is a dangerous place to be, and according to the proverb, it is anything but wise. Lone Ranger Christianity is a dangerous place to be, and it is anything but wise. And to use the words of the Proverbs, not my word, I'm not calling you dumb, but to use the words of the Proverbs, it lacks self or sound judgment. And what it does is subjects a person to the very real risk of personal destruction. We need one another. It's why we emphasize gathering together with other believers, building relationship with other believers, running the race with other believers. Because Lone Ranger Christianity is a dangerous place and it is anything but wise. And so I encourage you, stay connected with others in the faith. Run the race with others that are running the race as well. The scripture, you know, 1 Peter, it reminds us that our adversary, the devil, prowls around seeking someone to devour. That's his mission. We know, we've read the end of the book, we know what happens to the devil, we know that he will ultimately be destroyed. And so all that he can do in the days leading up to that, the years leading up to that, is bring as many people with him that he might devour and destroy, be destroyed as well. And so he seeks to knock those out. And if he can't get you before you come to faith, he'll try and make you worthless once you're in the faith. And he seeks to devour. And so we learn from the Jews here the strength in numbers. Amen, my friends? Now last week I pointed out to you that failure on the part of any of the Jews to believe this new decree would mean their death. And again, I'll explain what I mean by that. If the new decree comes out and it's uh, brought in by the couriers and so on, and it says, great news, the king has granted us permission to take up arms and to protect ourselves. And so on that particular day when they're supposed to come against us, we should be fine. Now, if somebody hears that and says, well, you know, I think I'll be okay. You know, I I think that's overreacting. I think everything will be fine. Well, the ultimate result would be certain death for that person. Because when those that were following the first decree came, they would destroy that particular person. And so what we see here is despite this fact, what what catches my attention, remember back in Esther chapter 8, it says that this new decree comes, and notice what the Jews do. It says in every province, in every city, wherever the king's new command and edict reached, There was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. So there's a decree out there that the Jews are all to be killed on a certain day. But now there's a new decree out there that they can defend themselves. And if they did not believe the new decree, they would be destroyed. But it's obvious that they do believe the new decree. And the reason why it's obvious is because they have a party about that. They are so confident in this new decree that despite the fact the decree of death is out there, They rejoice, there's gladness, there's feasting, there's a holiday, and there is joy. Because the coming day of their demise, the 13th of Adar, will actually become the day of their deliverance. And they believe the king's word, and they celebrate that fact. The day that had previously been dreaded with great mourning, this is from chapter 4, with great mourning, with fasting, with weeping, and with lamentation was now being celebrated with great joy and great gladness. And again, I I made this reference before. I just can't help but think of the two decrees that hang over each of our lives. There's a decree of death, and there is a decree of life. The first decree being the decree of death. The Scripture says that the wages of our sin is death. The Scripture says all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means every one of us in this room. Now, we're all different people. 
We go different places, live in different communities, go to different jobs and all that kind of stuff. We're all different people, but we are exactly the same in this truth. And that is that there is a decree of death that lies over every single one of us in this room. And that decree has not been taken away. There's a decree of death because all of us are sinners and sin demands judgment. But many of us in this room, maybe not all of us, I hope all of us, and certainly by the end of our time together, I hope all of us, but many of us in this room have come to experience that there is a second degree, a second degree that has been issued, which we could call a decree of life, a decree that despite our sin, eternal life has been made available to those that are in Christ Jesus. And to quote that verse in Romans 6, where it said the wages of sin is death, it goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So now consider the implications, the reality for the believer there. For the believer, the day of their death, which the book of Hebrews talks about the the day of people's death as something that they avoided and they feared for all their lives. But for the believers, the day of their death has actually now become the day of their deliverance. So that day that we feared all of our lives coming to now actually becomes the day of our deliverance, the day that was previously dreaded and avoided at all costs has now become the day of our heavenly home going, the day that we finally enter into our rest and our complete and total rest. I remember many years ago when I was a somewhat new believer, there was a woman uh, at the church that I was going to that developed a condition that was ultimately going to take her life. And she knew it. She knew how long she had to live. And so she began to plan out her funeral. And you know how on many cars they put little like stickers, funeral procession, and you know the cars they drive and they can go through the traffic lights or whatever. Well, she got little flag things that hung on people's uh, antenna. Like it was a party or a celebration. And it said on there, going home. And the people went driving down the road and the whole uh, funeral, she didn't want it to be some somber thing. She wanted it to be some rejoicing thing. I'm a new believer. I'm thinking she's out of her mind or whatever. But I've come to understand what she was doing. She was celebrating the day of her deliverance when there would be no more pain, there would be no more struggle, there would be no more fighting with our sin nature and where she would see face to face the one that she loved, the Lord Jesus, who gave his life for her. And so the day that was previously dreaded and avoided at all costs has now become the day of their heavenly home going. And that work for the Jew in Esther's day and for the believer in our day, is not enjoyed unless the second decree is received by faith. And so unless those Jews were, be, were willing to accept the king at his word that a second decree has been issued that can override that first decree, there would be no celebration, no joy, and no gladness. So the joy and the gladness came because there was a confidence in the decree that was written. And I would suggest to you, it's the same thing with the believer in Jesus Christ. It's faith in the word that is written, the word of God, that gives us the boldness and the confidence, confidence and the gladness, even though a previous decree remains, that we can go forward because we know there's a second decree that overrides the first. Resting in that word, trusting in the word of the King of Kings. Amen, my friends? Taking God at his word. Recognizing that sin requires judgment but because of his love and his mercy that he he took upon himself that judgment that we could be forgiven and washed clean of our sins. If I can make one final point, one of the things I've discovered with a lot of people that I know in the faith, and just a guy trying to run my race, and I have friends that are trying to run their race as well, 
one of the things that I've discovered in that process is there are a lot of Christians that are saved, they're born again, they've gone to the cross, they've recognized their sin, they've accepted uh, the forgiveness of sin solely because of the work that Jesus did, but they don't have any peace and joy in their walk with Jesus Christ. And they run around this, this race that I'm talking about, they run this race rather miserable. And the reason why they are running it rather miserably as you communicate with them and talk with them is they have this belief that yes, I was saved by grace, but I got to run the race in my own strength and in my own efforts and in my own work. And anyone that has ever tried to do that, and you, maybe you have in this room as well, you know you can't do that. And so you're miserable because you want to do that which is right, but you don't have the power within you to do that which is good. And there is, I, what I would, the reason I'm making the connection is this. There is a decree that you have been forgiven because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. And having begun by grace, are you now going to be made perfect by the flesh, Paul would ask, friends? Certainly not. We continue in grace. We, be, we began in grace. We continue in grace. If that's something that you struggle with, where you're trying to be righteous in your own strength, you're trying to live the good Christian life and you always fail, and if other people really knew the type of person I was, you know, all those types of things you struggle with, may I suggest a tremendous resource to you, the, the Bible? No, um, uh, that is a good one. Read the book of Romans, certainly. Read the book of Galatians. Those speak to this issue. But there's a really great resource, Why Grace Changes Everything. Chuck Smith wrote it a number of years ago, but it still remains true. Why grace changes everything. Maybe we'll get some and make them available to you because it just speaks into living in grace and the joy that comes in that type of relationship. All right, let's move on. Verse 3. Now all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents, they also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So wisely... These kings, they, or excuse me, these officials align themselves with the prime minister and the king. The, the direction they're going, they go. And so they jump in there. Verse 4, now Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. You may recall two weeks earlier when Haman was very upset with Mordecai and didn't know what to do with him. It was Haman's wife that suggested that he... that. Uh, he kill her, ultimately, or him, I should say, ultimately. And then when that didn't work out, Haman comes home and he's commiserating, and she says this. She said, if Mordecai, by whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but surely will fall before him. And I point out those words were almost prophetic. And here now we are in chapter 9, and that is exactly what is happening. He is dead. Mordecai has taken his job, has risen up. He's become great in the kingdom and truly, the one whom he began to fall before uh, would not be overcome. Now, you may remember back in chapter 3, this is very early on when the decree went out that everyone had to bow before Haman, and Mordecai wouldn't do so. Back in chapter 3, the people were like, just do it. Everybody else is doing it, Mordecai, just do it. And it seems, based on the context of what we're reading, that Mordecai must have said to them, I can't do it, I'm a Jew, as a Jew, I bow down to nobody but God alone, or whatever. And at that point, remember, chapter 3, verse 4, it says, When they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, because he had told him he was a Jew. So Mordecai had told them because he was a Jew, he couldn't do it. And now they want to say, all right, well, let's see if your God will protect you. 
Let's see if he will be on your side through this whole process. And here we are in chapter 9, and we have an answer to that question. That God has vindicated his child who was seeking to walk in his ways and honor him. I'm reminded, you remember Daniel, in the book of Daniel chapter 3, you have that story there of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are three slaves that were brought into the Babylonian captivity, and they were in a foreign land, and they were told that whenever uh, the horn blew or whatever it was, that they had to bow down and they had to worship, and they wouldn't do so. And you know you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, don't you? And I, I just I appreciate, I love their response, which was this. It says, now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're going to throw us into the fire because we won't obey you, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Those guys there, they say, look, God can deliver us. Mordecai, back there in chapter 3, said, God can deliver me. But if, even if he doesn't deliver me in the manner I'm hoping he will, I will not bow. And so he vigorously defends the Lord, even as other servants sort of pulled back. Even as the others, they wanted to see, will God really step in for Mordecai? Is, God's, is Mordecai's God really real? And here we are now, six chapters later, a number of years later, but six chapters later, and we see that the Lord has vindicated his servant. God vindicates his servant, his servants. Many times it takes a long time for that vindication to happen. One thing I found in my walk is that I can make a decision today to do the right thing and to walk in God's ways and stand with him and, and be faithful, but it becomes really hard five days later and five years later and so on. But God vindicates his children and he tells you what to do do that which is right, and keep doing that which is right. And that vindication will come at some point in time, maybe here on the earth, but maybe not to heaven. And so we continue to walk in his ways, humbly leaving things in his hand. Second Chronicles is a wonderful verse. I would suggest you memorize. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. That verse says this. It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. He looks to vindicate his people. Have a heart that's blameless for him. That's a promise of the word of God. He will vindicate you. Verse 5 continues, Now the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. He did as they pleased, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel, verse 6, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. As you see there, they also killed the 10 sons of Haman, and they're named for us there in verse 9, who was the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. And so in addition to Haman losing his life, these ten sons, which had Haman previously boasted of as a mark of his success, they lose their lives as well. Now, we might read that and we might be like, well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem appropriate. Why should the sons have to die because the uh, father did what he did? And again, we might ask the question, is that appropriate? And I would answer, yes, it's very appropriate. Because if you look at verse 2, what verse 2 points out is that the Jews laid their hands on those who sought to lay their hands on them. So the decree gave the Jews the permission to defend themselves. And so the fact that they laid their hand on these ten sons 
is an indicator to us that the ten sons rose up against them. As if, you know, we're going to avenge our father's death or whatever it may be. And so the Jews defend themselves against uh, the sons of Haman rising up against them. And it was a mistake for them to do so. That is, the sons of Haman rising up against them because it cost them their lives. Additionally, as we see here, uh, Esther, part, the other part of the reason why Esther goes against, or the, the Jewish people go against Haman's son, is because Esther is following the command that was given to Saul 550 years earlier. And we referenced that story a while back. Actually, next week we're going to look at it a little more in depth. But the first king of Israel was a guy by the name of Saul. And there, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll get the full story. But this is what God, through his prophet, said to Saul. He said, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And we spent some time talking about that out of context. It's a little bit of an uncomfortable verse, but in the context of the history of the Jewish people, the Amalekites were the perennial enemy of the Jews, regularly going to war with them over a five, six hundred year period of time. And God said, this ends today. And he told them what to do with Israel's perennial enemy. And as we read in 1 Samuel 15, with pride and foolishness, Saul refused to do so. Saul did not heed the words of, word of God. Saul bent the word of God, made it appeal, or come about to the way that appealed to him. And because of that, he was judged. Esther here now says this ends today. This ends here today with the Amalekites. As a matter of fact, you're going to see in a few minutes that it talks about 75,000 people were killed. The Jewish traditional teaching is that the 75,000 were killed were the Amalekites. That it wasn't just the general Persians or this or that, but it was the Amalekites that came against the Jews on that particular day. The Bible doesn't teach that, but that's Jewish history and what they teach. And so take it for what it's worth. Now in verse 6, notice it also says, actually I think it's a little later, it's verse 10. It says that they laid no hand on the plunder. So they, they killed all these people, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Now you may recall back in chapter 8, I read it earlier today, when the king gave permission to the Jews to defend themselves, he also gave them permission to plunder the goods that any, of any that came against them. So they had the full authority and right of the kingdom to not only defend themselves, but to take whatever they wanted from the people that had come against them that had died. And yet, as we see repeatedly in our passage, the Jews did not take any of the plunder. That they had no interest in getting rich off of this whole process but it clearly demonstrates that the, all they really wanted was to protect themselves and their families. And so they did not plunder the goods. And again, to refer to what Esther is doing and compare that back with what Saul had done, that was the exact instruction Saul was told to do as well. You are to kill uh, Agag, this guy coming against you, and the rest of the Amalekites, and you're not to touch any of their goods. It's all to be destroyed, he said. And if you're familiar with that story, you, you know that rather than destroying all of the plunder, Saul took some from himself. We're going to spend some time looking at that uh, and celebrating communion next week. It's a weird passage to celebrate communion with, but that's what we're going to do. But in there, what you'll see is Saul destroyed all that was worthless, but he kept all that was good. What kind of a sacrifice is that? You can have all my junk, Lord, you know, but I'm going to keep all the good stuff. That's not a sacrifice. And yet that's what Saul did. And so here is Esther now, 
doing that which Saul was unwilling to do. And so they take none of the plunder as Saul had been instructed. Now let's go on to verse 11. It says, now that very day, the number of those that were killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? What is your wish, Esther? It shall be granted you. What further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, well, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. And a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So the king comes back to Esther and essentially says, well, Esther, are you satisfied? We had this decree. This was your request. Are you satisfied? How would you like me to proceed? And Esther, her reply is, give the Jews one more day. Verse 13, give us one more day to deal with those who come against the Jews so we can finish this thing once and for all. And I'm reminded of the story of Joshua. Joshua chapter 10, somewhat popular story that you may have heard of where Joshua, the Jewish people, Joshua leading the Jewish people into battle, and they're having victory, but it's soon getting dark, and the enemies are going to flee, as you may imagine. And Joshua prays the most audacious of prayers. He says, Lord, let the sun remain, he says. I'll give you it more specifically. It says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon, so it's evening, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. We just need a little more time to finish this thing off, Lord, is what Joshua said, is what Esther says, and so she petitions the king for one more day. Not an indiscriminate massacre, but another day of opportunity in which the Jews could meet those that sought them harm And they could come out against them and defend themselves and put an end to this thing once and for all. Now she also requests that the ten sons of Haman's bodies, they're already dead, but that their bodies be hung on the gallows like their father's was uh, some ten months earlier. And the king says, all right, they can do so. Or do so. He agrees to their request. And it'll be a message ultimately that is sent to to anyone else that might want to rise up against the Jewish people, so they are impaled upon the gallows for all to see. We read in verse 15 that 300 additional people are killed in Susa. That's the capital of the city. And again, at the end of the verse there, verse 15, but no hands were laid on the plunder. And again, in obedience to the Lord's command. This isn't about them getting rich. It's about them defending themselves. Verse 16, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives. They got relief from the enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, comparatively speaking, far more died outside of the citadel where Esther and Mordecai lived. It's a 75,000 compared to 800. But if you do the math, you remind yourself there's 126 provinces. And so you take 75,000 and divide, there's 127. One of them is Susa. So there's 126 remaining. So you take 75,000, divide that by 126, and that works out to an average of 595 people. 
And so a relatively sa- similar number, or the same number, was killed throughout, scattered throughout the 127 provinces. About 600 people in each of those provinces came against the Jews and lost their lives for doing so. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. The 14th day they rested, and they made that a day of feasting and gladness. It was a day, they had a day of war, now it's a day of resting, feasting, and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day, on the 14th, And they rested on the 15th, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month as a day of gladness and as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And truly, the Lord had turned their sorrow into rejoicing. As it says in the Psalms, weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes with the morning. And the Jews now could give testimony to that truth of Scripture that God once again proved himself to be true. And he did that very thing for them. Go down to verse 20. We'll pick up there. Now Mordecai, he recorded these things. He sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday, that they should make those days days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another. So Mordecai is careful to record God's great deliverance. We see that in verse 20. Notice they also establish a yearly celebration, which is going to remind the people annually what God had done for them. Verse 23, the Jews accepted what they had started to do, what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadath, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the pur, which is the lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, the king gave orders in writing that Haman's evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return upon his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter, of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So that Haman, you may remember back in chapter 3, they decided they were going to kill the Jews, and so they looked to their gods to find the day of favorability. What day would be the good day to accomplish this? And so they began to roll the dice or whatever it is. They cast the lots, they cast the purr, as it's called, and it seems as if, if you read the context, they began to like weed out days, and then the ones that remain, we got the month, we got the day of the month, this is the day that gods have chosen that we will have favor in coming against uh, the Jewish people. And of course, uh, God, the true God, overruled the lot of the so-called gods, and instead of being a day of destruction for the Jews, it became their day of deliverance. And so what better way to celebrate but with a feast? It's like the 54th feast in this book. They like feasts. Sounds like a Calvary chapel, I think. They like their feasts. And so they come up with this feast since the casting of the purr 
played such a role in it. They call it the Feast of Purim, as it says there in verse 26. Today, this feast is one of the most popular uh, um, of the Jewish feast. So this is not one of the biblical feasts. There were seven biblical feasts. And then throughout the Jewish history, they added additional feasts, like Hanukkah, for instance, was not an original biblical feast. And they began to add these. This is, Purim is one of the most popular Jewish feasts today. Uh, it's celebrated with costumes and games and noise. Uh, Jewish tradition, uh, the rabbis, they teach this, that all the feasts will cease in the days of the Messiah, but the Feast of Purim. So the idea is that uh, in what we would call the millennial reign, they say that this feast will continue, whereas all the rest will, will cease. I don't know if that's true. But the Jews decide to have a feast. And I came across this. I thought it was interesting. Many years ago, there was a Soviet Jew who was asked by a Westerner what he thought would be the outcome if the USSR stepped up its anti-Semitic policies, its anti-Jewish policies. And the Soviet Jew replied, oh, probably a feast. And he asked for an explanation. The Jewish man, he said, well, you see, Pharaoh tried to wipe out the Hebrews, and the result was Passover. Haman tried to exterminate our people, and the result was Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to do us in, and the result was Hanukkah. And so he says, I suspect if the uh, USSR ramps up its efforts against the Jewish people, probably the result will be another feast. And so they celebrate God's deliverance. Now, sadly, at the present time, the feast has degenerated into one that is more patriotic in nature than a celebration of God's deliverance. And so today, for the average Jew, here's how they might say, what are you celebrating with Purim? The average Jew might say, well, it's that God has delivered us, an emphasis on the word us. Whereas initially when it came about, it was that God has delivered us. So it's become much more of a patriotic celebration nowadays. In addition, many celebrate the feast as a time of gluttony. Just, I'm not sure it's that bad. You know, I like gluttony, Thanksgiving, you know that. But it, that's a sin the Bible calls it. Drunkenness certainly is bad. Excess, riot, and so on. Even the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is sort of the commentaries of the rabbis as to what it means to be a Jew. Even in the Jewish Talmud, it says this, that in celebrating the Feast of Purim, a man should drink until he knows not the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. These are the, these are the pastors of the churches that are saying this, or the rabbis of the synagogues. I just think that's bad. So anyway, one of the greatest examples of God's protection and deliverance over his people that it has devolved into gluttony and drunkenness and riot. It's pretty sad. But, you know, if you look at the way many people celebrate Christmas, that's how many people celebrate Christmas. It's a time for gluttony and drunkenness and, and rioting and so on. So the Jews are no different in that regard. But here back in the days of Esther, you have these Jews. Try to remember back to when we first started this study. The only reason these Jews are there in Susa is because when given the opportunity by the king to leave captivity and go back to beaten up, beaten down old, destroyed Jerusalem, many of these captives said, no, we don't want to go. We like it here. We like our captivity. We have a little bit of freedom here. And so the fact that all of this is coming against the Jews in this book that we have studied here really didn't have to come against the Jews because they didn't have to be there anyway. They could have been back in Jerusalem had they or their father or parents or whatever gone back to Jerusalem. 
And so what I would describe that as is they're outside of God's perfect will. Maybe you've heard that expression. And there's discussion amongst theologians. What's God's perfect will? What's God's permissive will? I don't really know what it all means necessarily. But certainly we can be outside of God's will. We can make compromise. We could get involved in sin. And yet it's not as if the Lord is like, oh my gosh, what is happening? I'm losing control of things. He's still sovereign. And so we have this idea of God's perfect will and God's uh, permissive will, if you will. And so here, in this book that we've been looking at, these Jews are outside of God's perfect will, but throughout the book, we nevertheless see God's providential hand of protection upon his people. That God ever stands in the shadows watching over his own. And for me, how comforting that is to know, how comforting that is for each of us here to know that even if we slip outside of God's perfect will, to know that we have never slipped outside of his providential dealings. And again, I think Timothy speaks to this. I've quoted this many times. Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul would write to him and say, when we are faithless, God remains faithful. Now we might hear that and be like, great, I can do whatever I want. I can go have a party or whatever. We should not conclude that walking outside of the will of God is no big deal. Because there is often great pain and chastisement when we get outside of the will of God, even for the child of God. And I would say this, especially for the child of God. There is often pain and chastisement. The scripture says this, for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so, yes, God's not going to take his hand off of you, but the hand might feel a little bit differently than when he's encouraging you than when he's you know, throwing his arm and stopping you. Does that make sense? Those on the tape are having no idea what I just did, but that's okay. <laughs> Henry Ironside wrote in the mid-1900s, he's great. He said this, he said, let no one conclude from this fact that is it a matter of small mo- amount or moment to him if his saints go on with that which is contrary to his revealed word. It's one thing to know a father's love and care even though walking in self-chosen paths. And that's the confidence that God's not going to remove his hand from us even if we're not obeying him in entirety. But then he goes on, he says, it's another thing like Enoch, however, to walk with God and have a testimony that is pleasing to him. That makes sense? We are meant to walk in God's ways. From the moment you were born, you were meant to walk in God's ways. God created things in such a way that this is how I want the people that are going to inhabit this earth to live. You were created to walk in his ways. As a believer, you were recreated to walk in his ways, and by his spirit, you were empowered to walk in his ways. And so it's in those places that true peace and true joy and true satisfaction is only experienced when we walk in God's ways. That's where true peace, true joy, and true satisfaction is experienced. And so it's not a light matter to get outside of God's will. Verse 29, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews in all of the provinces that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to the fast and their lamenting. Verse 32, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim. So she lends her authority to the prime minister's authority. Let's go on to chapter 10. We'll finish up the book. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land 
and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced them, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all the people. You'll notice there in verse 2, it references the book of the Chronicles of the Kings. We have two books in our Bibles that are called First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. That's not what is being referred to here. Uh, notice it says the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. This is likely, you remember back in chapter 6 when the king couldn't sleep and he asked them to read to him the minutes of the kingdom. That's likely what is being referred there uh, to. Verse 3, for Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king. He was great among the Jews, popular with his brothers. The reason? Because he sought the welfare of his people. Mordecai was a man of fine character who sought the welfare of his people. And too often we see people that rise up in power, they rise up in stature, and the power and the authority, and you might even say God's hand of favor on their lives, Rather than having a good effect, it actually corrupts that individual. And they begin to use that position for their own benefit. But Mordecai, as a man of fine character, rather he uses his position to promote the prosperity of others. And I think there's a good valuable lesson there. He becomes great among the Jewish people. He becomes great among the multitude of the brothers, which uh, seems to be a reference to the non-Jewish people, is because he used his position to serve other people. And I would say for us, uh, a point of uh, application is we are a privileged people in our nation, in our country, in the world, in the history of the world. And all of us have opportunities of a position of authority or power or prestige or money, whatever it may be. Use those things for the good of other people. Be a servant. And that's what makes a person great in God's eyes. Amen, my friends? And let us pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us through another, res another book. Lord, you've blessed uh, our time in it, and we've seen your hand. Lord, I, uh, I pray that a lesson for us would, would simply be that you can be trusted, that even though you may not work according to the time frame that we would like you to work, Lord, we can walk in your ways uh, faithfully trusting that you are sovereign and in control, and you will ultimately bring things about for our good and uh, to accomplish good. Thank you for Mordecai's faithfulness. Thank you for Esther's courage and her boldness. But ultimately, Lord, thank you that uh, you never leave us or forsake us, even when we are faithless, that you remain faithful. And we rejoice in that truth, and we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.